Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And Chag Sameach, Sukkot. Happy Holocaust. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> Sukkot, Tabernacles. Remember all the way back in the book of Isaiah, it calls Messiah Emmanuel, God who is with us. That's what the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles is all about. It looks back historically to the time that Israel dwelt in the wilderness with God. Which of them dwelt in tents? All of them, including God. So God dwelt in Israel, in the wilderness, in the center of them, in a tent, as they surrounded him on north, south, east, and west. The whole camp together. I turned it on. Let's see. The red light's not on. Now we're back on the record. Now if I could just remember where we were. It's about the Feast of Sukkot, Tabernacles, God dwelling amongst men. It's the time of Messiah's birth. He was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you wonder when Messiah was born, that's it. And I decided we would continue in Jeremiah tonight and teach about the Feast of Tabernacles tomorrow because Jeremiah 10 feeds right into the study of tabernacles. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. The first word is here. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you. But it's not to you. It's about you. Uh-oh. Do you want God talking about you this way? Uh-uh. So hear the word which the Lord speaks about you, O house of Israel. Does that let you know right away Israel's not doing good things? Yeah, sounds like the woodshed is coming. It says, thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, keeping a finger there. Ephesians 4. I like to say you find the same things in the Old Testament that you do in the New Testament and vice versa. People say, where in the New Testament does it say not to learn the way of the Gentiles? Well, here it is. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Is there any chance it's not true if he's testifying in the Lord? No, it's true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. In a futility or perverseness of their mind. So is Paul writing here in Ephesians 4.17 to Jewish believers? No. no, these are believers out of the Gentile world. So what's he saying? Once you get saved, stop sinning. Leave the ways of the Gentiles behind. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 10 because we covered verses 1 and part of verse 2 last time. Verse 2 says, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. But the word isn't really dismayed, it's afraid. Don't fear 
the idols. Who should you fear? The one who can kill body and soul. That's the Lord our God. To fear the idol is to be obedient to the idol. To fear God is to be obedient to God. Who should we obey? We should obey the Lord our God. Do not be afraid at the signs of heaven. Why in the world does it describe the idols as the signs of heaven? Sun, moon, and stars. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 14. The signs of heaven were created by God in Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 for the benefit of mankind. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14. Then God said, go get me an erector set. No, he simply spoke and they were. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be four signs. And seasons, but it's not seasons. The word season is zaman, like summer, winter, spring, and fall. This word is moedim, it's for the appointed times. Shabbat, Passover, etc. are so important to the Lord, he put the sun, moon, and stars up there so we could tell when they occur two days before he created man. And let them be for days and for years. So that's what he means in... Jeremiah 10, 2, do not be afraid of the signs of heaven. Who would be afraid of the sun and the moon? What is he talking about? What did all the pagans worship? The sun god and the moon god. You don't want to anger them. That's right. What if the sun doesn't come up tomorrow? Oh my goodness. We could all freeze to death. We could be in the dark. Jeremiah 31 says it will come up tomorrow. It absolutely does. Verse 35. Verse 35. Why will it come up tomorrow? Because who told it to? Because the Lord told it to. And it goes on to say, For the Gentiles are dismayed or are afraid of them. Now, how many times have you heard the sun and the moon speak to you? If so, there's people downtown in medical offices that can help with such things. So why... Do people obey the commandments of the sun and the moon? Because there are pagan priests who tell you what they say. They need to go down and see those shrinky people downtown. Yes, sir. Think about this too. People who call themselves Christians are afraid to read the book of Revelation because it's too scary. It all goes back to not understanding the feasts and the festivals. Not understanding the purpose of the signs that God put in the heaven for our benefit. Not understanding the purpose of the signs that our Lord God put in the signs in the heavens for what purpose you said? For our benefit. They're there for us. To aid us. To help us. Not to rule over us. So in the northern kingdom of Israel, when the crops came in bountifully because God blessed, they went and took a sacrifice to Baal and Ishtar. For what purpose? To thank them for the crops. Why would they, do, why would they think that the sun and the moon gave them this food? Because the pagan priests are telling them that if you don't bring these sacrifices, and oh, by the way, put some gold in my pocket, then the sun and the moon won't give you these crops in the future. Oh my. Verse 3. For the customs of the peoples. 
What kind of peoples? The Gentiles. Are futile. The word literally is vanity. What does the word vanity mean? Worthless, empty, of no value. So taking an offering and sacrifice it to Baal is worth nothing. It's worth less than nothing. Now here's where we get into trouble. For one cuts a tree from the forest. The work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Let me tell you that half of Christianity right now is screaming, that's talking about Christmas trees. And the other half are saying, absolutely not, no way. So is it talking about Christmas trees or is it talking about a hand-fashioned idol? The answer to that is, it's both. It's both. There are two different ways that the people of ancient days worship the sun god and the moon goddess. One was to cut down an evergreen tree, to bring it into the house, put a base under it so it wouldn't topple, and decorate it with silver and gold balls. They have found these in excavations in Israel, so they know that it really was done. The gold balls were in honor of the sun, the silver balls in honor of the moon. Why would they do that? If you think all the way back to Nimrod. Remember Nimrod back in Genesis 10 and 11? Nimrod was the one who began pagan worship after the flood. And he built that Tower of Babel. Of course, I bet he didn't put much effort into it, but had it built. Why was he trying to reach the heavens? To get closer to the sun and moon to worship them. Nimrod died. The custom of the day was when the king died, you kill the wife and bury her with him. Believe it or not, Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, didn't like that idea. So she said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I am the queen of heaven. That's where you have the origin of that phrase, queen of heaven, that we see in the book of Jeremiah. She said, I have the power of life and death, and I'll prove it to you. Cut down an evergreen tree, and in the spring, I'll make it grow back to prove that I have the power of life and death. How many of you realize they didn't have science classes back then? So the people didn't know that if they cut down an evergreen tree, it'll sprout back in the spring. So ever since then, they have been using the evergreen trees as a way to worship Samarimus, even though she's called different things in different cultures. In Egypt, she was called Isis, etc. If we take a finger here, keep a finger here, go back to Deuteronomy 12. You'll see whenever God talks about destroying pagan idols and pagan high places and places of pagan worship, he keeps mentioning the every green tree. That should read the evergreen trees. They were the symbol that she is the true goddess of heaven with the power of life and death. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. <clears throat> These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess 
all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills. Why would they put the pagan high places up on the tops of mountains and hills? They're trying to be as close as possible to heaven, to the sun and the moon that they worship. And under every green tree, those are the evergreen trees, also called Asherah poles, Asherah trees. Asherah is just another thing for Ishtar. Verse 3 says, You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars. The sacred pillars were what you and I would call today Christmas trees, at least some of them. And burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. Now let's go back to Jeremiah verses 3 and 4. In addition to cutting down evergreen trees, bringing them in a house, putting on a, on a base so they wouldn't topple, and decorating them with silver and gold, they also cut down trees from the forest, shaped them in the shape of people, especially women that were well endowed, and cover them with silver and gold. The gold for the sun god, the silver for the moon goddess. Um, I'm going to read you a couple articles about the origin of the Asherah tree slash Christmas tree. This one's called <clears throat> Celebrating the, quote, Asherah, unquote, tree dash Christmas origins by Dr. James Slobozian. Says, did the early church celebrate Christmas, question mark? Did Jesus command his followers to celebrate his birthday every year by decorating Christmas trees on our homes? says Bible scholars will emphatically say no. We all know that's not true. Did Jews celebrate birthdays at all? No. Did the first century believers celebrate Messiah's birth at all? No. Not till a long time after. says then where did these customs originate from? It is an historical fact that Joseph married Jesus, the 12 apostles, and the 120 disciples never celebrated Jesus' birthday on December 25th or any other day of the year. Now, why would I say something like that? Because the first century Jewish historian Josephus, we all know him, right? Has noted that Jewish families did not celebrate birthdays. Nay, indeed, the law does not permit us. They're quoting from Josephus now. Quote, nay, indeed, the law does not permit us to make festivals at the birth of our children and thereby afford occasion of drinking to excess, unquote. Drinking to excess. Yeah, that was the custom of Christmas for a lot of its history. <clears throat> Back to the Symposium article. For the first 300 years of the early Christian church, the birth of Christ wasn't celebrated in December or on any other day of the year. The celebration of birthdays, including that of Jesus, was rejected as a pagan heathen tradition by the apostles and all of Jesus' disciples. For one thing, the astrological implications of the celebration of birthdays, open parent, pagan practices like astrology, close parent, are specifically prohibited in the Bible in Isaiah 47, verses 13 to 14. In addition, Christians for the first three centuries did not want to be associated with the many pre-Christian pagan religions that honored their sun god's birthday on the 25th of December. 
see the following list of seven. Number one, the Babylonian sun god, whose name was Tammuz, his birth was celebrated on December 25th, and they point to Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. So it's mentioned in the Bible. Number two, the Persian sun god, his name was Mithra, M-I-T-H-R-A. His birth was celebrated on December 25th. Number three, the Egyptian sun god, whose name was Ra, R-A, as in Ra, Ra, no it's not. His birth was celebrated on December 25th. The Greek sun god, whose name was Dionysius, his birth was celebrated on December 25th. The Greco-Syrian sun god, whose name was Adonis, his birth was celebrated on December 25th. The Roman sun god Sol Invictus, that was the religion of Constantine, Mithraism. Sol Invictus means the unconquered sun. His birth was celebrated on December 25th. And the Hindu sun god, yes ma'am? Sol Invictus, S-O-L space, I-N-V-I-C-T-U-S. Sol Invictus, it means unconquered sun. And number seven, the Hindu sun god who's Surya, S-U-R-Y-A, that birth was celebrated December 25th. That day was chosen because of the winter solstice. We're going to get to that. But before we do, I want to look in the Bible at something. Go to Isaiah 65. This December 25th celebration called the Saturnalia or the Feast of Gadamani. Is mentioned in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. If it wasn't, I might have just skipped right over this stuff, but it is. What is Isaiah 65 about? It's about the return of the Lord to establish his kingdom. It's stuff you don't want to be doing when he, when he comes back. So Isaiah 65 covers things like don't be... Caught in idolatry. Don't be eating pigs. Don't be doing things like that. But also we have verses 11 to 12. But you are those who forsake the Lord. Who forget my holy mountain. Who prepare a table for Gad. And who finish a drink offering for Mani. That's that December 25th celebration. Therefore, I will number you for the sword. Is that an honor? No, that's to die. You shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes. So even though God said, go back to Deuteronomy 12, to a verse we haven't read yet. The Lord said, don't celebrate me the way you celebrate the pagan gods. Constantine was a worshiper of the sun god and therefore made celebrations of Messiah's birth to coincide with the December 25th celebration as just one of a number of sun gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. 
So is this a temporary because they are in the wilderness? No. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. If this is a commandment forever, and is to do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God, is God's standard going to change? No. Yes, Daniel. This goes right against what people say about, about Christmas. About Christmas. It's, it's what it means to me. It's what it means to me. Right. You know, that, whole, that whole mentality. You know, that whole mentality. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means to God. You're absolutely right. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It's what it means to God. Kirk Cameron is famous for saying that Christmas trees, well, they used to be pagan, but now they're a Christian symbol because they point up. When God sees the Christmas tree, what does he see? He sees pagan worship used for him. So let's keep going in Deuteronomy 12. Verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. Doesn't that sound like don't be dismayed at the signs of the heathen? After they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? The word serve means to obey, to do what they say. I also will do likewise, meaning, will you do to God the things they do to the pagan idols, to worship him like he's a pagan idol? It says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You shall what? Not worship the Lord your God in that way. Okay, back to the Sabozian article. It says, sun worship appeared in, every, in nearly every pagan religion in the world. The ancient polytheistic religions increasingly consolidated their pantheons of deities under a single sun god and celebrated all their birthdays during the winter solstice, that's why, which was December 25th in the Roman calendar. So what's happening to the days as we approach December 25th? They're getting shorter and shorter and shorter and colder and colder. And the people are afraid that the sun's going to go out. Therefore, they have this celebration, drunken orgies and such things, to entice the sun to come back. That's what it's all about. It says in the Sabozian article, this allowed Constantine and Roman bishops their cunning introduction of sun worship and paganism into Christianity to make Jesus their new sun god by celebrating his birthday on December 25th. And then the headline in bold, solstice quote, Christmas quote trees, are they Christian or pagan? We suppose he quotes now a scripture. Jeremiah chapter 10 Verses 3 to 5. And it says, Did the early church, the first 300 years of Christianity, why does he choose the first 300 years? What follows that? Catholicism. So pre-Constantine, pre-Catholicism. Did the early church celebrate the winter solstice by cutting down a tree from the forest, bringing it into their homes and decorating it? Question mark. No way. It was forbidden. For example, the second century theologian and early church father Tertullian condemned those Christians who celebrated the winter festivals or decorated their houses with laurel boughs in honor of the emperor. Quote, 
Let them over whom the fires of hell are imminent affixed to their trees. You know what it means by that? Christmas trees, when they get dry, they burn really quick. Have you noticed that? Well, let them be tied to their trees when they go up, he's saying. Laurels doomed presently to burn. To them, the testimonies of darkness and omens of their penalties are suitable. That's from ChristianityToday.com. Goes on to say, modern day professional pastors declare that the Christmas tree tradition was started by Germans in the 16th century. So we think Christmas trees must go back to the first century. They don't. They don't go back to the fourth century. They go back to the 16th century. Says Annette Martin Luther was the first Protestant reformer to bless this quote, Christian quote, tradition by putting lights on his tree. He put candles on an evergreen tree. Yeah, but as late as the 1840s, Christmas trees were seen as pagan symbols and not accepted by most Christians in America. In fact, they were illegal in America till the Civil War. The influential Oliver Cromwell preached against, quote, the heathen traditions, unquote, of Christmas carols, decorated trees, and any joyful expression that desecrated, quote, that sacred event, unquote. In 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts enacted a law making any observance of December 25th, other than a church service, a penal offense, mean a crime. People were fined for hanging decorations. That stern solemnity continued until the 19th century, as in the time of the Civil War, when the influx of German and Irish immigrants undermined the Puritan legacy. President Theodore Roosevelt, an avowed environmentalist, banned Christmas trees from the White House during his presidency. But why did the early church fathers up till the 19th century condemn the traditional Christmas tree? And I didn't print the rest of the article, but you get the idea where it's going. The next one I wanted especially to print because it's got pictures. If you can see the picture on the front of a decorated evergreen tree, this is from the tomb of Roy in an ancient Egyptian burial place long before Christianity. Yeah, and notice they've got a, a baby laying in a little basket underneath it. It says in this article called The Fascinating History of the Christmas Tree, it started in ancient Egypt by Charlotte Zobir Ali. Means it started in Egypt in ancient times. This is an Egyptian writing, it appears. Did you ever think that you could trace the origins of the Christmas tree back to ancient Egypt? I was surprised when I made this stunning discovery. The epic history of this remarkable civilization will never cease to amaze me. Ancient Egyptians used to decorate conifers. What's a conifer? It's an evergreen tree. And made wreaths as well as garden to celebrate Ra, the sun god. They believed that winter came every year because Ra was sick. Imagine worshiping a god that gets sick every fall. <laughs> On the 21st or 22nd of December, during the solstice, the population used to celebrate Ra by filling their home with beautiful evergreen trees. This event was proof that the sun god was going to get better. Ra was worshipped all over Egypt and often depicted as the hawk-headed man carrying the solar disk. You know how else he was described and depicted? As a golden calf 
with a round solar disc between its horns. You know, like the one that just jumped out of the fire for Aaron. This mural is from the tomb of Tosseret in Sutnaket. It says, ancient Egyptians believed that the sultis symbolized the triumph of life over death. Evergreens were thus the symbol of rebirth and joy. It says, archaeologists were left shocked when they discovered Christmas trees murals in the tomb of Roy. He was a royal scribe during the riveting reign of Horemheb and insisted on having a special place celebrating Ra and the solstice. So if anybody wants to see the picture afterwards, it'll be up here. One more article, just a short one, from an article called, Why Do We Put Up Christmas Trees? The Ancient Roots of This Decorative Tradition from Ancient Origins. It's titled Christmas Tree Origin. It says the Christmas tree is an iconic feature of the holiday season. You can find this symbol on greeting cards and advertisements shaped into cookies, plastered across wrapping paper, in the homes of millions of people around the world. But few of us stop to consider why we go to the effort of decorating a tree each year. Apart from thinking of its value in increasing our, quote, Christmas cheer, unquote. Says Martin Luther's role in popularizing the Christmas tree. Although Christmas celebrations are often associated with the birth of Jesus and Christian beliefs, open parent, however many non-Christians celebrate Christmas too, close parent, evergreen trees had no place in early Christianity. The famous symbol wasn't even mentioned in relation to Christmas until 1605. It has been argued the connection was first made in Germany where it may have been popularized by the German reformer Martin Luther. Luther is said to have been inspired by the beauty of a Christmas Eve starry night sky. He decided to replicate the image by cutting down an evergreen tree and putting lit candles on it. It did not take long until German homes were decorated with candies, fruits, and paper roses for Christmas time, he doesn't say, and rebuilt soon thereafter. <laughs> the last paragraph is titled, Ancient Roots of Evergreen Tree Significance. It says, although the link between the evergreen tree and Christmas is relatively recent, the significance of the tree itself is much older. An interest in the evergreen tree can be traced all the way back to the worship of the sun god Mithras, while well, Wisconsin's religion, Mithraism, around 600 BC, the god was often pictured in or next to an evergreen tree. Okay, back to the scriptures. If you believe that this is talking about a Christmas tree, it is. And if you believe it's talking about trees that were fashioned into idols of, like in a human form and covered with silver and gold, it's that too. It's whichever form of idolatry you want to use, God is opposed. Yes, Malini. Even though we were, quote, in church. Even though we were, quote, in church. And we had the Chrismon tree. And we had the Chrismon tree. Out there in the foyer. Out there in the foyer of the church. Mm -hmm. Doesn't God say you shall have no trees in my courtyard? But we were all there and we were all doing it because we didn't know any better. Yeah. And now that we do... But it's in here in the Bible. Yep. We, we never studied the Old Testament. You never studied the Old Testament, so you didn't know it was here, but it's been here from the beginning. But we had the Bible yep. for 
Yeah. Yeah. You had a Bible, but you were totally snooker. We used to sing old Tannenbaum in church with the Christmas trees up front. Yeah. Yep, used to sing Old Tannenbaum in church with the Christmas trees up front. Well, let's not do that right. anymore. Right. What is the heart of repentance? I didn't realize that was wrong. I'm not doing that anymore. Right. Yeah. What did Joash do? Or Josiah? Pick any one of the reformers in the old days. Found a book of the Torah, tore his clothes and made reforms tore down the idols now that we know do we care he ground them to powder yeah so let's go back to Jeremiah 2 verse 3 for the customs of the peoples are futile what does that mean they are of no value whatsoever keep a finger here go up to the book of Matthew or Mark which one should we go to Let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 7. They say the same thing. Mark chapter 7. You can almost look at that as I was sitting there reading all that. It's stupid. Yeah. You think, why would people want to do that? When I was a kid, we put up a Christmas tree. Didn't know any better. When I read the Bible, I said, no more of that. When you're in the moment, you're doing it, you're not even thinking about it. How does it feel to God? Bob would never cheat on Nancy. But if he did, and she found out, and he's very sorry. He says, I'll never do that again. But over the bed, I want to put her picture. But when I see it, I'll only think of you, dear. And we'll celebrate your birthday, but on her day. But when we do it, I'll only think about you. How long would Bob live, Nancy? <laughs> He'd be gone. So while we may not know the significance of these things, do you think God has forgotten? No. So in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Messiah rebukes the scribes and Pharisees. Didn't you always wonder why he didn't like the scribes and Pharisees? I was always told in church it's because they kept the commandments of God down to the minute little detail. He didn't like that. Is that what the Bible actually says? He rebuked them because they were not keeping the commandments. Look at Mark chapter 7 verse 6. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Why does he call them hypocrites? They claim to be the children of God, but they're not. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips. What does it say in Luke chapter 6, verse 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? You honor me with your lips, but their heart is far from me. What did Messiah say? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. They say he's the Lord, but they're not willing to keep his commandments. And in vain, there's that word again, in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So syncretism, which is taking the things that are pagan and using them to worship God. When God said, don't do that, and expecting God to be pleased with it, that's hypocrisy, it's vanity. So go back to Jeremiah chapter 3. 
Verse 4, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. That is true of both the evergreen tree they bring in that they put on a base and decorate it with silver and gold. It's true if they cut the tree up and fashion it into a human image or even the image of a calf and decorate it with silver and gold. It's for the same purpose. It's to honor the pagan gods, not the Lord our God. Verse 5. The Lord does something that he did in the book of Isaiah, and that's to try and ridicule the people so they would see the silliness of their actions. He says they are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried. You've got to carry your God around with you. He can't even walk by himself. Can he at least tell you where to take him? No, because he can't speak. Because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Do not be afraid of them means don't worship them don't be in awe of them don't be in obedience to them they can't do anything to you i love that old story in the talmud and i don't know if it's true or not don't much care it's still a fun story about how abraham he was called avram when he was a little boy was left alone in his father's shop his father was the village idol maker and he had learned from Shem, the son of Noah, because they overlap. In fact, Shem outlives him. That there is only one true and living God. So when his father was away, he took a stick and broke all the idols but one. And put the stick in that idol's hand. When his father got home and said, what happened? He said, well, that idol went crazy and broke all the others. And his father said, now son, you know better than that. That idol couldn't do that. And Abraham allegedly said, then why are you worshiping them? I thought it was a good story. True or not, doesn't matter. And then he dropped the microphone and walked out. <laughs> dropped the microphone and walked out. Maybe so. Okay. <laughs> but verse 5, its point is, if you're going to worship a stick with some metal on it, think about what you're doing. What can that stick do for you? Not a thing. Is it going to bless you? No. Is it going to bring you good health and longevity? No. Is it going to bring in good crops to feed the family? No. Then why would you do it? Worse, why would you turn away from the true and living God who can do all those things and worship the stick instead? It all goes back. They're not afraid of the stick. They're afraid of the words of the false prophets who speak on behalf of the sticks. So, if you don't do this, this stick's going to do this to you. And that's right. The, that's, that's the center of their worship. It's out of fear. It's not out of love for the idol. Right. It's out of fear of punishment because that's what the false prophet is telling you is going to happen. And not out of love for the idol. Why should we be obedient to God? Because we love him. Because we love him. And we have faith in him. Part of the
problem in the church today is we take a word like faith and we go to the English dictionary to look it up to see what it means. Instead of looking to see where does it come from in the scriptures. Mulaney, what's the word for faith? Imuna. It comes from he'amin, which is where we get the word amen. And it means that God spoke and you believe him. He tells you to do something, you do it. He tells you not to do something, you don't do it. That's what faith is. Salvation is by faith. We believe God. And then how do we prove that we believe God? We do what he says. And instead, in Jeremiah 10, he's talking to a group of people that are in Jerusalem that have cut creches in the temple of God to put up these pagan idols. That go out and bow down in the courtyards with their backsides, their behinds to God, bowing to worship the rising sun in his own temple. The women are baking cakes for the queen of heaven. Who's the queen of heaven? That's Ishtar, Samarimus, Isis, whichever term, whichever culture you're in. Why are they doing that? Because they're listening to whom the false prophets. Jeremiah is crying, repent, repent. And the false prophets are saying, don't put him to death. We're going to read about it here in just a few verses. They're going to try and put Jeremiah to death because they don't want to hear the word repent. They like their sin. Yes, Melanie. The church like you were in? Is teaching salvation through Yeshua. That's good. But they're also teaching a bunch of other false stuff. So, are they false? Are they false teachers? I would have to ask you this one question. Do they teach you to follow the commandments of God or to break them? Then they're false teachers. Who said that? The Lord did in Matthew chapter 7. Right. Yep. Matthew chapter 7. They're going to come to us. Turn to it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. These are people that thought they were saved, they thought they were the children of God because they listened to the false teachers. And Matthew chapter 7 tells us the outcome. In Matthew chapter 7, they're standing before the Lord on judgment day. They're expecting to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, I've been told all my life that if you call Jesus Lord, you're going to heaven. These people, every one, are calling him Lord, Lord. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's terrifying to me. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day. What day? It's judgment day. The day of the Lord. It's too late. They have died. They're standing before the Lord in judgment. Saying. 
Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Their churches have taught them that these are the things that characterize a Christian, a believer. You got to speak in tongues, you got to prophesy, you got to this, you got to that. Did God command us to do that? No. But the churches did. And what good did it do them? That's verse 23. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, antinomianism, as treating the commandments as if they no longer apply. But which word in verse 23 jumps off the page? Lawlessness. Lawlessness is one, but there's another that I want you to see. And I want it to jump even quicker and higher. I never what? Knew you. Which scripture tells us the test of knowing him? Do you know the Lord or not? 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4. Let's look at those quickly and then we'll get back on track. Maybe we are on track. 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says I know him does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The Baptist commentary say wait, 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 that's wrong. That's teaching salvation by works, but it's not. It's saying that if you are saved by faith, how do you live your life? In obedience to God's commandments. And if you don't, if you think the commandments do not apply any longer, what does it say? The truth is not in you. Yep, let's go to John 17.3, which describes what does it mean to know the Lord? Those two verses here are just connected. That's why I usually go to John 17, 3 first and then right on. But this time it went from Matthew chapter 7 because it used that same word. Do you know the Lord? Does he know you? The scripture says if you know the Lord, he knows you. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have seen. I am not qualified to judge anybody. And I get lots of emails that say, is my grandma saved? I don't know your grandma. I'm not one to judge whether one's saved or not, but what does the Bible say? Okay. Yes, sir. I'll insert this before you go off the subject. My experience for many years is that many, many, many Christians are one verse Christians. Yeah. One verse says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that's it. Forever, no matter what you do, walk off the pier, do what you want to. Yep. You can't drown. And where is that one? I don't know. It's Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. But I'm just saying, and there are others that, uh, you know, uh, yep. John 3.16, for God so loved the Okay, I'll claim that one. Yeah. They, they take one verse. Yeah. And they build. They make a doctrine out of it. Instead of loving and obeying and knowing, they, I mean, they know about Jesus. Right. That's what the Matthew 7, 21, whatever, the 7, 21 Matthew 
Yep. Those people, they knew about Jesus, mm-hmm. and then they did their own thing. Yep. Go to Romans 10. Because it does not say exactly what they think it says. Seldom does. Yeah. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What verse was that? Romans chapter 10 verse 9. The problem is, that's not the way the sentence actually reads in the Greek. Yes, that reads in the King James. When you see the Lord Jesus, Lord is an adjective. But it's not here. It's a noun. So you should read that if you confess with your mouth the Lord is Jesus. Meaning Jesus is the Lord. The Lord is used from Genesis through the end of the Old Testament. He is the one who says, I am the Lord. I am God and there is no other. So who gave the commandments? The Lord did. Jesus is the Lord. Yeshua is the Lord. Yeshua Adonai is different from Yeshua Adonai. Do you hear the difference? Yeshua Adonai is Yeshua is the Lord. Yeshua Adonai is the salvation of the Lord. You just have to be careful how you read things. The Lord is Jesus is the way that reads. So the Lord in the Old Testament. How many times in Isaiah do you see, let's go back to one in Isaiah chapter, let's say 43. In Isaiah 43 verse 14, thus says the Lord, that's the Lord that Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe Yeshua is the Lord. Your Redeemer. What's the Redeemer? The one who redeems us from our sins. The Savior. The Holy One of Israel. Go to chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. There's the same Lord. Yeshua is the Lord. The King of Israel and His Redeemer. That is Israel's Redeemer. The Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So Yeshua is the one who gave us the commandments. And when we say, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Lord, and he abolished God's commandments, they confess him with the mouth, but their heart is far from him. It's really bad when you see the very popular... It's really bad when you see the very popular... People on television. People on television. And this morning... And this morning, this one was Jeffrey's. Yeah, Jeffrey's down in Texas. He's a good Baptist pastor. Anyhow, he he was really putting down the King James. He was really putting down the King James. You're supposed to say Jesus is is the way, the truth, and the life. And you say, but you got to do all these things, otherwise you can't get to. And he says, isn't that silly? Says he died for you. You're okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to Jeremiah. I'm not here to bash any religion, any pastor. I just want you guys to know what the Bible says so that you don't get caught up in these things. My daughter said, you know, that really confuses me for him to say this and what you've been telling me is this, you know. And then what do you do? You say, well, Jenna, let's see what the Bible says. You know what she, but he was saying that 
the King James Bible, but now we have the NIV and it's a newer <laughs> version and all of this. And I thought, oh my goodness. The NIV will lead you straight to the lake of fire. Oh. Anybody in GoToMeeting land out there? Anybody on the internet? If you have an NIV, throw it away. Get a new King James. Okay, so back to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6. And no, new King James people don't give me a cut. Verse 6 says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord. The reason it says there is none like you, O Lord, is comparing the Lord to these sticks that have a little metal on them. How do they compare to the Lord? And the word Lord here is the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, the same ones that Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, Yeshua is the Lord. The Lord is Yeshua. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. What is the name of the Lord? We don't know until we get to the New Testament. It's Yeshua. His name appears throughout the Old Testament, but we don't necessarily see it. Oh, let's go back to Deuteronomy 4.35. Deuteronomy 4.35. Brother Lane? Yes, Miss Rachel. Is, is uh, In verse 6, there is none like you. Is that Mika Mocha or is that Ain Oz? None like you would be Ma'ain Kamoka. Yep. Yeah, I know. Ain Ode means no other. So Deuteronomy 4.35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. That's where you're going to get Ain Ode. There is no other besides him. So the word Lord there, the Tetragrammaton, is the same Lord that you see in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, but people don't realize that it is. Honestly, how did I hear Dr. Ben Alper put it once? He thought that the man's name was Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Deuteronomy 4.35, there is none other besides him. There is no God but the Lord. How many times does God tell us that in the book of Isaiah? Do you remember? Mike, do you remember? We made a list once. Is it seven or eight times? At least seven or eight times. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. That's the Shema. We sang it earlier tonight. Here is the word Shema. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, how does that compare to the New Testament? Where does the Lord say, I and my Father are one? John chapter 10. So keep a finger in Deuteronomy 6 if you can't remember it, but I bet you can. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 has another important nugget about the scripture. What is that, Daniel? 
It cannot be broken. That's verse 35 of John 10. But first we need to look at verse 30. I and my Father are one. Echad. Remember when the disciples said, show us the Father, what did Messiah say? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah, they didn't put the head slap in there, but we'll recognize the Lord when we see him from the flat forehead from banging it against the wall. <laughs> Verse 35, John 10. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. What's that mean? Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Did Yeshua say the same thing essentially in the book of Matthew chapter 24, verse 35? Look at Matthew chapter 24. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will by no means pass away. If you believe that God changed one of his commandments, 1 Kings chapter 13 says, watch out for the lion, right? Because the prophet believed that God changed a commandment and the lion ate him. Yes, Daniel. And then back in John 10, going right off what I just said. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, then believe me. So he's pretty much saying, if I don't do what's commanded in the scriptures, right? then I'm a false prophet. If I don't do what's commanded in the scriptures, he said, then I'm a false prophet. But he did keep the commandments, didn't he? John chapter 15. Right. So all these people that say that Jesus came to abolish the commandments or came to abolish God's law, however you slice it. Right. What are they calling Yeshua? What are they calling Yeshua? He said in John chapter 5, I did not come to abolish. So when you say he came to abolish, you're calling him a liar. John chapter 15 verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he said in John 10, if I'm not keeping the commandments of God, then don't believe me. But if I am, then why aren't you? John 10, verse what? John 10, 37. John 15, verse 10. Let's go back to Deuteronomy, to chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. So if God said in Deuteronomy 12, don't use the things they use to worship their pagan gods to worship me, should we take things like an evergreen tree decorated and use it to worship God? Deuteronomy 32, verse... Goodness, is that a 39? Ah. Yep, Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. 
Oops, we got some comments on your questions. Let's see. Will you hold up to the camera? I bet that's the picture. I bet over, look, that comment a long time ago. There's the picture. Will you send that out, please? Yeah, okay. Are you stating that being baptized in the Holy Spirit is wrong? I didn't say that. I didn't even imply that. Okay. 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is all from the verse that says, Those pagan gods, don't compare them to the Lord our God. There's no comparison. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 2. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. I heard a hmm, somebody read ahead. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. King James says it better, but that's pretty good. How did King James say it? There, they made a song out of There is none holy as the Lord. There is none like you. Yeah. Neither is there any rock like our God. So remember, we're in a portion of Jeremiah where the people are comparing this stick to God, to God and saying this is preferable. This is better. This is more beneficial to me. I want to worship this stick. Right, because that way they can do what they want. Because that way they can do what they want. They can make up the rules. They can live in sin without needing to repent. Like Andy Stanley says, they just disconnected from the Old Testament. Yeah. Did you say 1 Samuel 2.32? No, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Verse 2. Yep. Which is like 1 Samuel 4, but it's not. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. What went with pagan idolatry was sexual immorality. You worship God, can't play with the prostitutes. Worship the stick, play with the prostitutes. What do they do at Baal Peor? The guy brought up this pagan prostitute and said, you want to worship that desert God or play with this? And how quickly did the plague break out? Yeah. Second Samuel chapter seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, until Phineas took a stab at it. Yeah. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse twenty-two. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. And notice the word God is actually the word Lord. They just didn't translate it right. For there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And does it matter if the false commandments are coming from the false prophets who prophesy for the stick? Or if they're coming from another source? In the Garden of Eden, God said, Thou shalt not eat from the tree. 
And what did the serpent say? Yeah, eat from the tree. Did God really say, you're going to like that fruit. Go ahead and do it. And when they listened to Satan rather than God, what did that mean? Go to Romans chapter 6, verse 16. They're slaves of sin. Why did Messiah tell the scribes and Pharisees that those who followed him were on the road to the lake of fire? Because instead of listening to God, they're listening to someone else. Does it matter who the someone else is? Does it matter if the scribes and Pharisees or Constantine or the Pope or the Baptist pastor or the Lutheran pastor who's telling him to ignore God's commandments and do something else instead? The source isn't important. What do all these verses say about God? He's unique and there is none other. Ain't owed. Romans 6.16, do you not know? That to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey. Meaning the one you obey. Whoever it is. You are that one slaves or servant whom you obey. Whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So to listen to a man say. Well don't do what God said. Do what I tell you instead. Doesn't matter that it's not a stick. Or a piece of metal. That's as much idolatry as those false prophets talking for the stick. Did we read 2 Samuel 7.22 or did I get off? We did. Then go to 1 Chronicles 17. Another comment there on Romans 6.16. Another comment in Romans 6.16. It kind of jumps out at you. It just kind of jumps out at you. How can I be righteous before God? How can I be righteous before God? It's certainly not by walking in sin, is it? It says obedience leads to righteousness. And other scriptures say righteousness leads to... Yeah, you're right. It's so simple. I mean, how do I be righteous before God? People beat themselves up and cut themselves over that question. Yeah. There's the answer. There's the answer. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 20. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 20. O oh Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Again, O oh Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. That's the essence of the song, Mika Mocha, right? Mika Mocha Ba'eli Mananai. Who is like you, O oh Lord, amongst the gods? The answer is... There is none. Ain owed. Which I'm sure is where we get the southern expression, ain't none. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. You know what the pastors out there are saying about me? I'm teaching you to be saved by works. Is that it? No, you can't be saved by works. You can only be saved by faith. But if you're saved by faith, the scripture says your life is going to change. And you're going to want to follow God's commandments because they're written upon your heart. 
did another radio show this week following up on the Acts 10. Did you read it? I've got the Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord. See how the word Lord is spelled? That's the same Lord in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The king of Israel. Anybody know who the king of Israel is? The Lord is the king of Israel. That's our Messiah, Yeshua. And his redeemer. Who is our redeemer? Who's the only redeemer? Our Messiah, Yeshua. The Lord of hosts. The one who leads the heavenly armies in Revelation 19.11. Who's that? It's our Messiah, Yeshua. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Is that in Revelation 22, verse 13, being quoted by our Messiah? Yes, it is. Besides me, there is no God. That's why Tertullian, in the year 210, came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. He was opposed by the rest of the church until the 4th century, when Constantine made it law in the church. Because he said, we don't want to follow God's commandments, so we'll replace God with Jesus. And then we don't have to do all that stuff God said. He was that mean old God of the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 45, there's several more in chapter 44, but... Let's go on to 45. Verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. So if you look at this stick up here, it's very useful. I can write with it. It even had an eraser. I could erase a bad writing with it. But is this like God? No. I can't write through stone with it, that's for sure. Same chapter, verse 21, Isaiah 45, 21. God's finger wrote through the rock. And on a wall. And on a wall, yeah. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? That is, who's told the future from the time past? Who's told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Which was written first, Isaiah or Jeremiah? Isaiah by a long while. So the people in Jerusalem saying, let's just kill Jeremiah so we can quit hearing this repentance stuff, should know all these scriptures. As they're bowing down to Tammuz and Baal and Ishtar, they know these scriptures, but they don't want to hear them. Look at Isaiah chapter 64 verse 4. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, talking about Genesis chapter 1, 
Men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Not lawlessness. Proverbs 28 verse 9. If you turn away your ear from hearing the Torah, what's it say? Even your prayer is an abomination. And just for kicks, we rarely get to go to Hosea. So let's go to Hosea. The name Hosea means salvation. So what's it going to be about, do you think? About salvation. Hosea chapter 13. I'm always pleased when I turn to chapter 13 and there is one. Verse 4. Yet I am the Lord your God. There's the tetragrammaton. The same as what you'd find in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Ever since the land of Egypt. He's been God from the beginning. But Israel and the mixed multitude didn't accept him as God. Until he brought them out of Egypt. He says and you shall know no God but me. For there is no savior besides me. What's Hosea about? Salvation. Mm -hmm. Salvation comes through the work of the Savior. And that's the Lord our God, whose name is Yeshua. Go back to Jeremiah. Chapter 10, verse 7. When we sing Mikamoka, we then sing what? The Song of Moses, but I've seen the line, verse 7, who would not fear you? Remember that line from Mikamoka? Who would not fear you? Meaning who in their right mind would turn away from God and put their fear not in God, but my stick up here? I know it's a dangerous stick. If I hit you real hard with the pointy end, well, if I put a pointy end on it, it might hurt. Who's afraid of a tree? Verse 7, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Notice not just king of Israel, but God is king over what? Everywhere, all the world. He's king of kings, lord of lords, as we read in Revelation 19. For this is your rightful due, meaning this is what we owe to the Lord. Does it make you think of Ecclesiastes? Let's turn to Ecclesiastes. Who wrote that? Solomon. The word nations there is goyim. God does not have a different set of expectations for the nations and Israel. I know you're getting tired of me saying it, but in the first five books of the Bible where the Torah, the law is found, how many times does the word Jew or Jewish appear? Not a one. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. You know, I've heard Christian pastors say to me, Wayne, your problem is you read the Old Testament. <laughs> 
if you quit reading the Old Testament. I'm not going to quit reading the Old Testament. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work, everything we do, into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon says, listen up, my sons, because he's talking to his children. Think about everything you do as if you're going to be judged on it one day, because you will be. And if you fear God and keep his commandments, how will judgment go for you? Much better. And that word matter is devar, which is word. You can sum up the whole Bible in these words. To fear God is to have faith in God, to believe in God. And to keep his commandments is to demonstrate that your faith is real. It means something to you. Psalm 119, verse 1, echoes Ecclesiastes 12, doesn't it? Let's look at Psalm 119. Yes, Daniel will always have us remember verse 126, which says, It's time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Which means whenever you decide that God's law is irrelevant, you're in danger of what? God's judgment. But Psalm 119.1 is not translated well or correctly. The first eight verses, because it's an acrostic psalm, always begins with the letter Aleph. And it starts out blessed, and blessed begins with a bait, not an Aleph. So it immediately tells you it's Ashrei, which is happy. Happy are the undefiled. That word is Tamim, it means blameless. In the way, what way? The way of the Lord. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Meaning come judgment day. Those who have walked in God's commandments are going to be happy. Will they hear, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness? No. Yes, Daniel. And you know, in that first one. In that first one. If you think about how many pastors or how many commentaries you read that talk about the law was such a burden, such a heavy Yoke that people couldn't bear it. Here it says if you keep it, you're happy. Yeah. Because you understand the ways of God. Yeah. The heavy yoke was all the additional commandments. Right. Thousands of them. I had a pastor that I listened to on YouTube because he was going to talk about Psalm 119. I thought, boy, I just got to hear this. He read verse 1, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. He said, that means happier those who bring their Bible to church on Sunday morning. What? what? Exactly. What? How did they get that from this verse? The answer is, they made it up. Proverbs. Proverbs? Three. Three? Four? Something like that? Lean out to your own yeah. So many people are leaning on their own understanding of human wisdom. Yeah. They and they change the Bible and teach it to others. Mm. And I just hate that. I remember our Baptist church, First Baptist Church in Prattville, 
had a huge copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall. And number four was, thou shalt go to church on Sunday. So they changed the word of God to match their theology instead of taking their theology and matching it to the word of God. So they're false prophets, right? Yes, ma'am. And then the sidebar, I looked up Proverbs 4.4. You looked up Proverbs 4.4, which said just what she said. He also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Keep my commandments and live. Talking about life eternal. Okay, Genesis chapter 22. Because I'm going to run out of time here in a minute. What did any of this have to do with the Feast of Tabernacles? Because that's when Messiah was really born. Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. This is the season of our joy. It sure is. Genesis 22. Verse 12. Genesis 22, verse 12. Abraham has just bound Isaac and laid him on an altar. Raised up a knife to slit his throat. And God said, wait, 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 don't do that. We don't sacrifice children. But in verse 12 it says, And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What's he mean, now I know? Now you demonstrated. How did Abraham demonstrate his faith? By doing that which... God told him to do what God commanded him to do. Go to Genesis 42, verse 18. Then Joseph said to them, The third day, do this and live. For I fear God. Why did he add, for I fear God? I want to stand before him on judgment. Joseph knows he's going to stand before God on judgment day. And he wants God to say, you did that which was right. So Joseph is not going to, oh, how shall we say, kill his brothers because of what they did to him. Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Moses appoints judges to help him administer the children of Israel. And God tells him what characteristics to look for. Exodus 18, 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as what? Fear God. Men of truth. What's truth? The Torah. So men who will obey God and follow God's commandments in the Torah or the law. Hating covetousness. Meaning what? Not trying to take your silver and gold and bribes. So that I can twist justice your way. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. 
Deuteronomy 25, 18. Deuteronomy 25, 18. Deuteronomy 25, verse 18. We're going to start in verse 17 so you know who the he refers to. It says, remember what Amalek, everybody go, boo, did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did what? He did not fear God. If he had feared God, would he be slaughtering the aged, the elderly, the young, the babies, the sick? The No. He wouldn't do that if he feared God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 7. I know time's getting short. In more ways than one, by the way. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I knew you can find it because we we're in Ecclesiastes 12 a few minutes ago. When you get to Proverbs, start slowing down the pages. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 7. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but what? But fear God. We have dreams, we have aspirations, we have hopes. But if they don't involve the fear of God, of what value are they? Same Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times... And his days are prolonged, meaning God doesn't cut him down and kill him right there on the spot. Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So those who fear God are going to walk in obedience. And God promises life eternal because of their faith as demonstrated by their lives. But the wicked who will not fear God, what does he say? Their days will not be prolonged. And it will not be well with him. And if we hadn't done it already, we'd have gone to chapter 12, verse 13. But since we have, let's go on to Acts chapter 5. Let's look at the New Testament before the time gets totally away from me. Acts chapter 5. Because it's not just an Old Testament concept. Acts chapter 5. No, it's Acts chapter 13. What I thought was a 5 is the S on Acts. Acts chapter 13. Well, you try reading my handwriting one time. I should have been a dart. No, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Acts chapter 13, verses 15 to 16. It's all Colonel Green's fault. When I was applying to go to law school, he said, Son, you need to make your handwriting less readable. 
<laughs> Got to mess up that signature so it can't be copied because nobody knows what it says. Okay, Acts chapter 13, verses 15 to 16. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. That phrase, you who fear God, referred to the Gentiles who are meeting in the synagogue to learn the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. That's how Paul describes them as you who fear God. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is called a God-fearer. In fact, that's where I wanted to go next, was Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. And then just one more after this. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So he fears God. He keeps God's commandments. So why does the Lord have him send for Peter? What's he missing? Knowledge about Yeshua. Knowledge about Yeshua. How God sent his only begotten son to suffer and die for us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Cornelius can't go to the temple and sacrifice a lamb and shed blood. But he has the blood of Messiah. And that's far superior to the blood of bulls, goats, or lambs. The animal blood can't take away sin, but Messiah's blood does. And then Revelation chapter 14, the last scripture I promise, unless I think of another one. I may as well be honest, right? Revelation 14, verse 7. We'll start in verse 6, since 7 starts in the middle of a sentence. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? The everlasting gospel, meaning it's never changed. The scripture says the gospel is preached to them in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. It's never changed. It never will. To preach to those who dwell in the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Do you realize some of those are Gentiles? Mm -hmm. Saying with a loud voice, fear God. What's it mean to fear God? Be obedient to God. Give your worship to God. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth. The sea and springs of water. Who's supposed to fear God and give him glory? Everyone. Just everyone. That's all. You know, if you don't believe out the Old Testament, you don't know who created heaven and earth. That's right. There's all kinds of things you don't know if you leave out the Old Testament. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, we've come to the end of our time. We will pick up next week, Lord willing. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 8.